welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Oh yes, welcome back to What on Earth, the podcast that asks the question, what on earth is going on in minerals, energy and modern supply chain as the industry transitions to the post-carbon net zero world? Each episode, we look at a big issue that is currently impacting these sectors and ask what on earth does this mean for our business? We aim to provide an understanding for you on the connection between the global issues and your local business. We seek to find clarity in the chaos of change. I'm James Scotland, the General Manager of Minerals, Energy and Supply Chain for the Australian Industry Group. And joining me each episode is my colleague and friend, AI Group Senior Advisor for Energy and Environment, the erudite Tenet Reid. Hello, Tenet. G'day. Good to be with you again. And business and industry commentator, the always engaging Paul Hodson. Hello, Paul. Hi, James. Good to be back. In this episode, uh, guys, I wanted to talk to you, uh, I wanted to ask you about an issue that comes around every year for many Australian businesses. At this time of the year, business owners and managers are thinking about their business strategy for next year, for 2022, either because we're halfway through the financial year and we need to think about the next six months, or because it's the beginning of a, a new year, depending on how your accounting system works. And this means that many businesses are assessing their Australian operation and international trade, both in getting supplies into Australia and in selling to the world. So in this episode, let's talk about global trade. Here's something interesting. A, recently, a recent detailed report from KPMG said that more than 70% of research businesses are now moving from COVID survival mode to growth. Growth in revenue, growth in market share, growth in improved net promoter score, and most importantly, they're expecting to focus on new markets and new customers. And these findings have been supported by what uh, we do here at uh, AI Group. Our members are saying the same thing. And of course, for an island economy, this means global trade. But global trade brings many challenges. Just think about the recent headlines about China and the US, about uh, France and submarines and the shipping problems and all the other things that we're facing in global trade. In my management career, especially when I was in strategic management, I would invite a disparate group of specialists to come in and advise my team on their thoughts and on the emerging markets. So I thought we could do that today. Their thoughts and opinions would help me and my team develop a SWOT and from that a revised strategic plans. So let's pull it apart. Let's see what your thoughts are on global trade. Now here's the good news. Here's the very good news to add to today's Brains Trust. We're joined by the Head of Policy and Industry Development at Australian Industry Group, our colleague tenant, the incomparable Louise McGrath. Louise is a well-respected and well-known specialist in the issues of global trade. Uh, we've been keen to get on the podcast since we started, so it's exciting to have her here and to hear your thoughts on what's going on internationally. So welcome to What on Earth, Louise. Thanks, James. It's good to make it this time. Yeah, it's good to have you. Exciting. Lots of our, Louise, lots of our listeners would know you either through uh, having gone on, on international trade delegations with you or by hearing you speak or by reading your articles and comments, but not many people I would imagine know your backstory. How did, how did you end up in international trade? How did that become a focus of your life? Well, I, um, I've been at AI Group for 20 years, so I sometimes think that anything that happened before probably doesn't really matter. Thank you very much anymore. But I did start my, my university training was in languages and culture, specifically Arabic, with um, minors in Indonesian and, and linguistics. Um, so I guess my specialty is not so much trade, but in cross-cultural communication and in understanding how other countries work. And that's probably been the most useful thing, useful skill I've used um, throughout my career, because it's not just when you're in a room negotiating and understanding how decisions are made, but it's looking globally at, at how countries approach the world, what their values are, um, and predict, though as someone has said recently, predictions are hard, um, especially in the future. Uh, then um, <laughs> um, it is possible to somehow predict how they might act in certain situations which is the key to successful trade. Absolutely. At least we've got the name for the podcast already. You know, um, <laughs> Predictions are hard in the future. Anyway, welcome. It's going to be great to have you here. Let's talk about global trade. 
We're not the only people considering it at the moment. A recent survey of supply chain managers by The Economist magazine uh, came up, uh, the supply chain executives were in eight different countries and they came up with five current supply chain risks. And I thought we could sort of talk about some or all of these today. Number one, of course, is geopolitical risk. The second one is the pandemic-related risk, especially inability of staff to get staff, train staff, unable to travel to markets, unable to travel to speak to customers. The third one is high fluctuations in customer demand, in part brought on by stimulus packages all around the world. It's just throwing everything out. Four, regulatory and legal changes, uh, particularly across borders. Uh, hello, tenant. <laughs> uh, and, of course, as uh, all supply chains are now digitalised, number five was cyber attacks. So geopolitical uh, risk, pandemic risk, high fluctuation in customer demands, regulatory and legal changes, and cyber attacks. To that, I've added two for Australia, one being the energy crisis in some markets, making it possibly difficult for us to get supplies. Uh, and secondly, the transport delays and costs. Let's talk about some of those today. The first one, one we have to start off with, of course, is the geopolitical, geoeconomic scenario. And before I sort of throw to you to start, Louise, if you could, here's a quick overview. It's been 20-something years since I did my formal training in uh, international uh, management and, and cross-cultural trade. But I remember that this all started with a Scotsman, as it always does. In 1776, Adam Scott wrote uh, the, the Wealth of Nations, where he encouraged businesses to trade internationally. He said uh, that uh, the way to maximise the Wealth of Nation is for uh, a country to use the business uh, skills of absolute advantage to trade with another country. So if, we're, if our businesses in England are good at making cotton, we should trade that with France, which is good at making wine, and that makes both countries good. We turned along trying to get that in place until 1947 when, uh, in a surprising spirit of mercantile cooperation, the world came up with, or at least 37 countries came up with the General Agreement of Trade and Tariff, the GATT, which continued until 95 when I started learning about this stuff and the World Trade Organization replaced GATT. And the purpose was twofold, wasn't it? One, it was to, to encourage international trade by lowering tariffs and encouraging free trade or freer trade, but also to set up a rules of arbitration, a way in which we could sort problems out, a case of uh, rules rather than might, not the big countries um, um, and uh, not the big countries would always win, but there would be a way to do this. But it seems, Louise, that lately this has... Has, uh, has fallen off a bit. We're, we've sort of gone back to, to might is right rather than the, 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 uh, the rules-based system. WTO is having trouble getting agreements. China and USA are pushing the, the envelope a little bit uh, and we're, we're suffering from that. Is, is that a fair assessment? And by the way, Paul's just texted me to say that I said Adam Scott and I meant Adam Smith because um, Adam Smith is a Scotsman. Adam Scott is a golfer apparently. Thank you, Paul. So anyway, back to the point. Um, I think it's also how would you see account. that assessment? Uh, well, I think part of the crisis we have at the WTO is that, as always, mismatch of expectations. I think the expectation from many of the world, well, I know the expectation particularly in Europe and to a certain extent um, the US and, and Australia, was that by allowing China into not just allowing but encouraging China to join the WTO, that that would set them on a path of democracy, of sort of a liberal democracy, um, you know, in, in the sort of mirror image of the US and that they would be, you know, a, a useful player on, on the world stage. I think that's the mistake that people, many people have made in thinking about the WTO. The WTO was set up so that economies, as you say, of different sizes but also different political persuasions, different um, economy structures can work, can find a, a common ground in which to work and to, um, to trade and to uh, address disputes. It wasn't meant to be a sort of homogeneous washing machine that everyone goes in, you know, different and all comes out the same. That's not the purpose. And so I think what we're seeing now is that the realisation that actually we're not all going to be the same. If you look at the way... Um, 
India and South Africa in particular view the WTO, you know, the, the, their advocacy on the TRIPS waiver for vaccine um, production, their attitudes towards the moratorium on um, digital tariffs. So there's, you know, we have duty on goods that go across borders. We don't have any duties that go that on data that crosses borders, but that's because there's this moratorium that was due to expire some time ago. Um, but because of COVID, it sort of keeps getting extended. Um, you know, South Africa sees that moratorium is costing them millions of dollars a year. And they're a poor country. They, they don't necessarily want to lose that income. India sees that, you know, big digital companies coming into India, using the natural resources of the population, the large population, to build their business is just colonialism all over again. And so they're really strong on, um, on being able to tax data. So it's not just China. There's a lot of views um, when it comes to the WTO on a range of things. Louise, would you say it's uh, sorry sorry to jump in but would you say in some ways the WTO is a victim of its own success in that uh, by establishing a tent many countries wanted to get in it's made it a lot harder because there's so such a diversity of views and a pretty high bar to get agreement well it's unanimous you know that's the bar so that's always difficult if you've ever tried to go out for dinner with your family, you know how hard it is to get everyone to agree on one thing at the same time. <laughs> so, um, yes, it is, there has been early success and then, of course, more people want to join, but they bring in their, as I said, their perspectives, their different interests. I mean, we haven't had any substantial progress on agriculture for some time. Recently, we've had some progress on fisheries, um, which is good um, because you're not illegal fishing or overfishing. Um, Australia has taken the lead in trying to get agreement on digital trade and instead of going straight to um, a sort of a whole of WTO, they started a committee, which includes China, Europe, the US, sort of the main players, um, and there is some, well, there's, there's discussion, there's movement, and I think it's, it will get there, but once it then goes to everyone, that will be a problem. But... Within the WTO, there is scope to have opt-in. So the um, agreement on government procurement, for example, that is an opt-in agreement. It's WTO-based. Countries, um, you know, there's certain changes they have to make to their government procurement rules to get the benefit of that, um, but we're not waiting for the whole world to sign on. Just picking up, taking that one step further, uh, the GATT and then WTO was created in a, a, a sort of a pre-digital age. And now that we're in the digital age, has it outlived its, its useful, usefulness or outlived its structure? Do it, does it need to kind of start again? Well, I mean, you'd still have the same countries in the world, you know. So I don't know. Um, I don't know that it's outlived its its usefulness. The problem with digital is that there are so many elements to digital trade. It's a technology thing. So should that that wouldn't normally be WTO. We don't WTO doesn't govern what a ship looks like, for example. But it should be the International Sta um, Standards Organization who perhaps might do that. Um, there's um, privacy considerations. Well, WTO doesn't think about consumer rights. You know, it's it's not. It's not driven by that. So that's not really the platform for, for privacy conversations. So the problem isn't so much that the WTO isn't fit for purpose on digital trade. Or it's that digital trade, <laughs> under, I mean, as it disrupts everything, it's disrupted this multilateral, um, these multilateral platforms because there isn't one authority that can cover all the elements. You know, and, and, you know, tax is another one. You know, how do you attract investment? It's not really covered by the WTO. That's this why is we an issue. This is an issue that keeps coming out when we talk about uh, electronic documents for um, uh, for international trade and crypt, um, uh, blockchain, etc. There's a lot of the world's uh, laws are based on the British laws of you know, 1800s or, or wherever, and you need to start again. Uh, Paul, have you been across this much? Have you have you sort of had much thinking on the the role of the WTO and into the future? 
Um, look, I mean, I think it's a fascinating conversation and there are, it's multifaceted. Um, so it's not just about, you know, buying and selling goods or services across borders, right? I mean, there's a whole bunch of cultural factors. Um, there is that, that kind of uh, sense that people who trade together are less likely to, uh, to, to go to war. Um, um, and, uh, and, you know, it did sort of say about might. And I think a lot of it's, I wouldn't quite say bluster, but a lot of it is might in a talking sense uh, rather than a physical sense. There's still pragmatic reasons that you need things. And, and, and it does always sometimes end up in a bit of a balance because, uh, it, you know, you may want to limit imports and competition in your own country, but, uh, but you actually also want access to the rest of the world. And, and Australia has got a sizable economy. What are we, 12th or 13th in the world? Um, but we still only represent something about 3% of the global economy. Um, so um, so you, you end up in a very much a very pragmatic uh, discussion, I think, around this. And a lot of what the rhetoric that gets said is, uh, is overblown a little bit, I think. Um, and it's about looking sort of beyond that, you know, behind that and understanding the domestic political situation potentially that they're talking to. Uh, the political leaders and, and then actually look and see what they actually do um, and actually how trade works. And, uh, um, and it's, it, it's got a little bit of a stabilising element in some of that, I think. There does seem to be um, two factors at play. Uh, one is that a lot of the structures that have been in place for a long time are under stress. Uh, just sort of, we talked about the WTO, but, but also, you know, um, um, a Brexit is leaving the, the EU, Germany's having a dance with Russia over and, and sort of annoying its, its partners within the EU, ongoing unhappy little family there that's trying hard. Uh, we're seeing OPEC come to its end uh, and now it's OPEC plus and they're doing all sorts of strange things. But And, then, and one of the things we've seen is the Australian states have suddenly changed the landscape from, from a national a national picture, now we're talking much more states. At the same time, there's a whole bunch of global issues, isn't there? There's the climate change discussion, digitalisation discussion, um, social media is a global issue that needs to be resolved globally. How's that going to work? We're seeing a breakdown of old structures and, and, and the rising of, of new issues. Tenet, you probably come across this a bit. So what I'd say is is not so much that uh, structures are breaking down as that we are recognising afresh a lot of issues and distinctions and, and options that were always there but maybe were drowned out by a for a while, a bigger narrative. Very much in the in the nineteen nineties, there was a view of uh, that we were from some quarters that we were at the end of history, that there was a, a one best way to uh, do politics and economics, and that there is no alternative. And uh, what we're discovering on these many fronts is. There are other things you can do. The world will not end overnight if you do things in a different way. But equally, we may discover uh, quite a lot of the reasons why the arguments for what used to be the, the Washington consensus had some strength. The, the hand, I think, was overplayed. Uh, but... Uh, you know, the United Kingdom leaving uh, the European Union is having material consequences, some of them quite negative, uh, but they're able to do it. You can have a sovereign country doing its own thing. Uh, there are trade-offs, there are costs and there are benefits. And so I, I think that what we're confronting is, uh, uh, is the messy world that was always actually there uh, where we, we've, we've moved a bit beyond simple stories of how we should behave and what our choices are, but that, that confronts us with the problem of then deciding what, what to do in that front. I think it would be disastrous if we had uh, a 21st century equivalent of what happened at the start of the 20th century where the first wave or the, the then previous wave of globalisation, economic globalisation, was decisively reversed uh, and really to the, the, the great impoverishment of uh, advanced economies for the first half of the 20th century. That's why 
there was that post-Second World War impetus to put together uh, a rules-based open international order. Uh, and, you know, the, the memory of how bad things had been in the interwar years uh, really was quite powerful for a long time and, and was what calcified into that, uh, that consensus of, of the way you must do things. Uh, and so if we, if we allow that to happen again, if we allow the WTO not just to uh, kind of um, slow and plateau, but to actually fall apart and countries really doing, um, doing things that completely contravene the spirit of treating each other uh, in, a, in a, a fair way in trade, uh, then we will have some negative consequences. I think mm. we need to strike a balance between recognising that there aren't absolutes uh, in, in policy uh, and falling into completely anarchic anything-goes land where we will we'll have problems. Yeah, the story gets hijacked sometimes, doesn't it, into a, a narrative that fits Louis. I completely agree with everything that Tennant said. I think we really need these institutions. However, one thing we should be looking at is moving them. I mean, that, why are they all still in New York and in yeah. Europe? That doesn't make sense. The centre of gravity for the, the global economy is moving east. Um, and so they, it should be where where those drivers are and, and where all that action is happening. And not least because, you know, countries like Vietnam, um, Indonesia, um, Malaysia, Thailand, you know, the, these sort of ASEAN tigers, as they're called, they are really committed to trade. They're not mucking around. That They don't understand. <laughs> you know, they would never do Brexit. They're signing on to more agreements, not less. They see the power of trade to raise people out of poverty, um, to help them engage with the world, and they will fight for it. And, you know, they're already, I mean, as small countries, their voices are a bit, um, some, particularly in the Western media, we don't necessarily pay attention to what they're doing, but particularly Indonesia is making some really good contributions on the reform of the WTO. Well, let's move to that area of the world. What, what's happening in that region? I, I would agree that that's right. Uh, if you're an island economy and if you're an emerging economy, trade is the way out. Go back to the golfer or the economist. Um, you know, it's the, the absolute advantage. Use my advantage to trade. Is that happening in the in the Pacific and the the the, the east? There's a lot of people well, all of a sudden who want to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. What, the, the, the artist formerly known as the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah, but separate to CPTPP, because um, a lot of some of the countries who have applied probably won't um, meet the criteria, and then will get very upset and play the victim. Anyway, ignoring that, um, an easier agreement that countries have already joined is RCEP, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is Australia, New Zealand, ASEAN, Japan, South Korea and China. There was India in the negotiations, but they haven't signed on yet, though, of course, the doors are always open for them. So that agreement, I have to remember my figures, I think it's around 50% of the world's population, 40% of global trade and 30% of GD, well, global GDP or something Even along that. Even if you're that. way off, it's still a pretty impressive number, <laughs> aren't they? I mean, they're, yeah. they're big numbers. Um, and, you know, it's it, it's not the best agreement, um, mainly because India, <laughs> there was so much effort was to keep was made to keep India in the room. But after it was signed and, and made public, I was approached by a number of um colleagues in Europe, really admiring of our rules of origin. They're very practical, very pragmatic, very modern. Europe is nowhere near um, those rules of origin. There's pretty good rules on, on trade um, for digital. You know, you don't have to localise your, your data centres in every country. You don't have to share your software at the border, those sorts of things. Um, it's a great agreement. It's just passed, um, you know, our, we've just... Um, uh, finished our processes in Australia to, to bring it on. And so I think it should be live early in the new year. But I was at many of those negotiations and, you know, there were a lot of um, NGOs and others, who, you know, saying, oh, no one should sign up to this agreement, you know, rural economies. And one after the other, as the economies lined up, said, no, we want this. We need this to help lift our people out of po poverty. We need jobs. We need to be engaged in, in global trade. 
Do you have a lot of floral shirts from those photographs you always have at these um, no. <laughs> these, these trade gatherings? Uh, trade doesn't do that. Oh, right. <laughs> that that's well, APEC, which I've uh, never right. really been involved in APEC, but now I'm, I'm considering when you look at our FTA success outside of APEC, it's not great. So I'm, I'm oh. actually thinking a lot more, you know, favourably about APEC because all those conversations of how we do trade, how we think about privacy, all those conversations that happen, including business, really makes a difference then when you get to the negotiation table because we can't seem to sign, other than the UK, who just wanted an FTA, so there wasn't much to negotiate, we haven't really signed anything outside of APEC. It's interesting. Uh, I helped out at uh, APEC in uh, Sydney in 2007 in a, in a very small capacity and uh, the special shirts were only for the leaders. It was, no. it was dry as a bones uh, that year. Uh, oh, I remember. Yes, yes. No, nothing says help. Sydney like nothing says Sydney like Dryzer Bones, does it? <laughs> <laughs> In Pitt Street. Um, well, better than the the floral shirts for Sydney, probably. Hey, um, uh, Paul, back to my SWOT analysis for my business. Uh, Louise was talking about the opportunities in in Asia and and Pacific. It's also got a smaller carbon footprint to get my freight to get my products into that, that region. Should I be looking in that area, do you think? Oh, ab- look, absolutely. Better? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, one of, one of the things that it's really important for a business to understand is not just their own, you know, their own trade, but also all the suppliers they work with, even the people doing their maintenance, for example. Where are the components coming from? What's the delay? You know, if I've got a critical piece of machinery, um, what's what's the delay on some of these? And we know that whether it's maybe we're moving about in, a bit into some of the pandemic issues, but some of those supply chains have become really tight, um, and not just for for sort of consumers, but for businesses as well. So actually, really, I guess understanding, you know, some of those risks in your business of of supply chains and of uh, changing trade agreements, which might affect pricing, it might affect access. Um, but also some of the issues that we're seeing around just uh, the flow of trade and how that's been disrupted quite significantly as well. And, uh, and things like chips, for example, which are still in a global shortage. Um, and, uh, and, and as we move everything, as we're moving into the much more of the digital age um, and technology, there's very few things that probably don't have some sort of chip in them. Um, and uh, that, can be, that can grind the whole supply chain to a halt if you don't actually have that, that critical component. Um, so I think for businesses, it's really under, worth, you know, as it always is, just really understanding the context of your business, you know, who, who you're working with and, 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 and the like. And, and it's the, the, the trade of your actual product or service is only a small part of that. Uh, you may decide you don't want to export, for example, but people, people international companies will be working uh, in your suburb. Um, and that could be just happening online. So, you know, you can choose to not be uh, internationally competitive, but you can't choose uh, to exclude people from your market locally. One of the, uh, in, in a beautiful supply chain, a typical supply chain issue, one of, when asked, what do you need in order to build a semiconductor silicon chip type mega factory? What do you need more than anything? And the answer was, we need semiconductor you know, silicon chips because it's all it's all electronics. So there's a circularity there that's rather humorous unless you're trying to solve the problem. Uh, one of the challenges that the supply chain managers came up with in that report from The Economist was the changing regulatory and legal challenges in various jurisdictions and across borders. Um, Tenor, in a former podcast, you talked about uh, the border adjustment mechanisms may end up rolling across the world, not just being in um, in, in the EU proposal. Is that going to be a challenge for us in the next 12 months? So in the next 12 months, I think that we're just going to be learning about what is happening uh, and, and what's being introduced in other major economies. Uh, Europe probably won't conclude the deal making on introducing their own CBAM in the next 12 months. They'll, they'll make plenty of progress on it. Uh, and they're, the, they're further advanced than anybody else. Uh, but there is a lot of focus from international business on this issue. And we've been part of discussions with the uh, US Chamber of Commerce, Business Europe, Kaidan Ren in Japan, and many others about 
what are reasonable rules of the road for the introduction of carbon border adjustment mechanisms. Uh, and it really does go to the issues we were talking about earlier about can the WTO adapt itself? Can the participants in the WTO make it flexible enough to remain relevant to uh, these sorts of developments where countries want to do uh, things that involve the, the intersection between trade and other areas of policy? Can that be accommodated in a flexible way that maintains the, um, the vibe, if you will, of uh, what this international trading regime is about, or will it be formally rigid and maybe uh, fragile, uh, maybe uh, countries just going around or outside uh, the agreed framework to do what they want to do? That's not yet clear, but it's certainly possible to reconcile the two. It's just, will, will we do so? But in the next 12 months, uh, businesses that are trading in uh, goods and services that are currently emissions intensive uh, should be in in watch and learn mode, and and you know preparing their own transition uh, pathway will stand them in good stead. Uh, but they're not going to get an invoice for a carbon border adjustment within the next twelve months. Mm -hmm. Louise, you spend all your life in these international regulatory changes. <laughs> um, what was your thoughts? We pick up, agree with a tenant, no doubt, about the border adjustments, but there's other regulatory changes that could affect my business. That's right. Um, the World Health Organization, for example, you know, obviously a lot on its plate at the moment with the global pandemic, but prior to this, you know, they have perhaps an underreported role on the regulation of food and the marketing of food. And they are really um, looking at um, non-communicable disease, i.e. you know, food or diet-led diseases, which potentially because have a lot of um, impact on Australian food producers and um, manufacturers. You know, food manufacturing is one of our booming sectors within um, manufacturing. It's one of our great exports. So rules around the marketing, for instance, of infant formula, what, what can be on the label, what can be in the front of the label. Um, there's a lot of committees, um, a lot of committee work going on, not really any business representation there. In fact, WHO has been quite clear that they see business voices as compromised. Um, but if you look at a Pringles packet, you know, those long ones in particular, and you see all those different labels, that gives you an idea of the complexity for a food manufacturer on the, the what are the labels depending on what border you go, you know, it crosses. Um, presumably, you know, as COVID has shown, we're all essentially the same. We get sick with the same, <laughs> same thing. So why is it that our food labels are so different? You know, what, what, what different information do we need? So those sorts of things, standard organisations, um, you know, in the um, early days of, of this pandemic, a number of countries, um, particularly in the West, did not cover themselves with glory um, through their prohibition of export of medicine, of even food, of PPE. I mean, it, it really didn't didn't cover us well. Um, China took a different different tact. You know, as a major producer of PPE, they wanted to prove that they could save the world. You know, that this is their way of their reputational um, management, they all saved the world with their PPE. But if you remember, some of that PPE was faulty. And just show, China's not very good at soft power. So <laughs> anyway, so that didn't, they thought, well, we've got to fix this. So instantly they changed their rules that if you manufactured PPE in China, it regardless of where it was going to be used, it had to meet Chinese standards. Now that really turns global manufacturing on its head because you only ever worry about the standard of the market or the regulatory requirements of the market the product is going to be consumed in. So you manufacture in China, but it has to meet Australian standards if it's going to be used in Australia. Um, and this caught out a lot of companies who only manufactured for export, not for Chinese consumption, and so had no interest in, in meeting Chinese standards, which were quite different. Would have taken six months to meet. Um, really shows that a lot of things that we took for granted, anything can go. 
you know, in, in a pandemic. And so this change, this is really, I think, companies should be thinking of what are the changes that could could be made that could really impact their global operations. One thing I'd mention as well is that uh, some of the other steps, we, we mentioned uh, CBAM, but some of the other steps that the European Union is, uh, as the Commission has proposed and may be adopted over the next two years, would have impacts on, uh, on trade around the world. And in particular, uh, their proposal to bring shipping, international shipping into their ETS, Emissions Trading Scheme, and to uh, require uh, a progressively greater blending of um, zero carbon fuels into shipping uh, that docks in the European Union. They're a big market and whatever requirements they wind up putting in place will have impacts very likely on shipping around the world. Uh, so that's that's something to... Now, that, that is most directly a problem or a, or a challenge for the shippers themselves, but that'll have flow-ons across their supply chains uh, and it may impact uh, the, the, the costs uh, of shipping to other destinations as well. And there's, a, there's an issue there of you, you just don't fill up a ship in your home port and then it goes off and comes back and you fill up again. You have to have a, a worldwide network of, of refueling stations. Yeah. Um, and you uh, need and ships that are capable of, uh, with, with engines that are capable of uh, using uh, a given fuel. So some of the options being, uh, being talked about by proponents of of green shipping are, are drop-in fuels that could be used in existing vessels, but some of them need a different ship. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of talk in America, of, a, lot, a lot of talk in global shipping where they, they can't get into um, Long Beach in California because there's 90 ships, so they're sending them into Portland and other areas. So if that happened, there would have to be this global uh, refuelling. It's, it's, it's a huge issue, isn't it? It's not going to be easy to resolve. I'm not uh, – uh, Paul, you got a thought? Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, because, I mean, if you're, if you're a port that, that potentially is looking to be a bigger port, then these become advantages potentially to look at rejigging trade routes. Um, and we're seeing potentially that in the pandemic with, with airlines, right? Um, you can kind of see even just for passengers, uh, um, we're seeing uh, – you know, there's been a change in the mix of airlines, for example, flying into Australia. Some of them may not come back. Um, some of them may come back slowly. So it gives you an opportunity to kind of, you know, grab some market share if you're willing to take a leadership role. Um, and I think there will be. I mean, I, I'm aware of some ports having really quite strong conversations about uh, about setting up kind of um, uh, the sort of whether it's green ammonia or green hydrogen refueling or or something at various, so you might actually start seeing a change to to some of that because people grab a competitive advantage to try and change, uh, you know, where where ships might go. Yeah, I think there's plenty of opportunities is coming up. Before we get to uh, Louise, did you want to say something? Well, I just want to say, um, as Many will know um, prices for um, international shipping have gone up something like 500%. You know, in the last two years, it was sort of, um, you know, something like $800 for a 40-foot container, it's $5,000. What's very interesting, though, these prices have never been so high for so long and they're expected to be in place for another three years. Why isn't there another player? Like, why isn't a new shipping line come in? What, what are the structural barriers to increase competition? Because if I had the resources, trust me, I'd, I'd be leaving AR Group and I'd be setting up a shipping, <laughs> shipping line tomorrow because it seems to be a way to print money. Um, you know, and I, and I shipping lines, you know, GFC went broke and there was all sorts of problems and, and we expected that to happen at the beginning of this pandemic. It's, not, it's proven not to be true. But, you know, incredible demand, no one can get space, um, prices out of, out of the world. Why? What, 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 even the, 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 you know, environmental factors that Tenant mentioned, why don't we have any more shipping lines? Insert disclaimer here about this podcast not offering financial advice. 
<laughs> yes, do your own due diligence if you're looking at setting up an international shipping line. Um, but, uh, but, but I think one of the other things, it'll be interesting in your uh, comments on this, Louise, but um, the, the, the amount of container traffic, for example, that is how much of it is two-way um, in terms of there's a lot of empty containers being shifted around the world. Um, and I, I, I assume in Australia we're, we have a lot of full containers coming into Australia, but we don't have uh, the same number of full containers leaving Australia. And how does that impact you know, potentially your competitiveness as well, and and the costs, obviously, because if you're shipping uh, 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 empty containers around, um, someone's paying for that. Mm. Uh, before, you, before before you answer that, Louise, I'll just make a point that there was a report that uh, the the Biden administration is looking into the reports that ships are leaving Long Beach and racing back to China to pick up freight because the freight from on that leg, um, you know, China to America is better paid than the, the reverse leg. So they're not waiting to reload, they're just going straight off. And that's causing a problem in all sorts of areas, including containers being in the wrong wrong location. Sorry, Louise. Yeah, well, it is a problem globally that containers are essentially in the wrong spot. It's not that we don't have enough. That just, we, as you say, Paul, we export a lot of, we export a lot of ideas and a lot of services, um, but also, most of our exports um, being minerals are just on flat ships, so we don't need containers. We need to import a lot of containers. The other problem is that we, the food that we export needs to be in food-grade containers or refrigerated containers. We don't import it enough. So, yeah, it is this problem where we have um, just this complete imbalance in most of the Western world. Adding to the, imba adding, adding to the yeah. imbalance is that um, uh, America, again, is reporting that they can't get maintenance people to fix things like um, uh, containers that, that need repair constantly. They, they, they have a hard life. And so there's a graveyard that's building up of containers. Yeah. Tenor, what I about you? I hear those container houses and I think stop wasting containers <laughs> for Airbnb. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah okay got it Tenet. well so the, the world economy's in a, a a weird spot right now uh like some very specific issues around uh both the fallout of the pandemic and uh policy responses to the pandemic mean that we've got a bunch of supply side constraints um which are uh, flow-ons of slowdowns in production or investment over the past two years in different bits of the economy. Uh, we've got that combined with governments trying to uh, support uh, their economies and restart growth with very uh, stimulatory fiscal policies and central banks with very stimulatory monetary policies. So they're trying to run the economy hot to soak up uh, unemployment get people spending, get people in jobs, at the same time as some people can't work and some supply chains are snarled up. And that's, that's producing this combination of uh, continued strong unemployment in some markets and in some segments uh, in advanced economies with, um, at the same time, um, businesses finding it hard to fill positions that they've got, uh, bits of the supply chain backed up, like all these container ships trying to get into Long Beach. All of these things are probably going to work themselves out over time. It will be uncomfortable getting there, but there, there is investment coming in parts of the supply chain. Maybe we'll, we'll see uh, what the investment is on the, the containerized shipping front, uh, but the, the, sh the shortage of microchips is, is not a law of nature. That is going to be resolved. Some other things might not be resolved, like the shortage of uh, of gas in international markets at the moment. It's it's questionable how much supply side investment is going to come, given the longer term question marks over demand for that product. Uh, but a lot of this is going to be worked out. We we just need to get through uh, a, a really rough patch. Uh, where um, there's there's queuing, there's constraints, there's disruption. With that in mind, um, 
let's just sort of head towards what this means for Australian businesses. Before we get there, and I think they're good points, Lieutenant, um, about how the economics tends to roll out eventually. Before we get there, you mentioned China before, Louise, and I would imagine that every Australian business person listening to this podcast would be saying, but China's been building us up. What's, what's going on? Are there alternatives? Are we going to resolve this? How does it affect my business? Well, even five seconds or less, Jane. <laughs> um, look, the, I think one of the things with international trade, you often have to distinguish between actions of government and actions of people. And in China, that's a bit difficult because the government obviously controls many of the actions of people. I noticed um, a, a brief headline the other day that the Chinese government is going to pass a law that prohibits parents from putting too much pressure on their children. Um, so, you know, that they, they think they have a lot of control. Um, and it's true that, um, you know, we've been, we've taken China now to the WTO. There's um, a, a panel set up for the extra tariffs on wine. Also, I've got on, on barley. Um, so that's certainly interrupting trade and, and um, companies in those two sectors really need to obviously find alternative markets and it will be really difficult because, you know, 125 countries have China as their number one trading partner and that wasn't an accident. China wanted the world to, to trade with them. They made it really easy. Um, you know, India, you know, if, if you're to sort of use the analogy of talking to a girlfriend about whether this guy's into you or not, I'd say no, he's just not that into you. You know, all behaviour speaks to India doesn't really want to trade with us. Um, so not to the same extent of China, I shouldn't say. India would be a good partner, but it's it's hard. Um, but, you know, every on the 11th of November, so that's coming up um, in a few weeks, they China has something called Singles Day, which is the biggest online shopping event in the world. It's something like the, the, the GDP of Greenland or something in the first hour. You know, it's crazy figures. And so that's driven by people, you know, buying stuff, buying skincare, buying vitamins, buying milk powder. And this year, well, last year, I should say, um, we were number four. So US, J um, Japan, South Korea, Japan and South Korea are very big on beauty products, so it's no doubt that they would beat us. And then we were the fourth country So, um, in terms of sales. So the Chinese people still like Australian product. So I think, you know, that's important because from a consumer point of view, there, there still can be a market. Um, but for a lot of AR group members, our relationship with China is not as a customer but as a supplier. And I think that's the real risk that a lot of, companies will be trying to to work out you know china's getting more expensive is it really worth it is there an easier market to deal with there's a lot of interest at the moment in vietnam particularly because vietnam has signed up to cptpp so they do have the much better digital rules than rcep gives us um, you know they are really committed to, to trade they've also signed an fta with the eu so they are um they're sort of credentials on trade and trade rules and, and following trade rules are really much better than China. So if you were looking for an escape hatch, Vietnam would be the one many would choose. But, you know, you mentioned earlier this sort of um, consumer-led recovery that a lot of governments are doing, you know, trying to stimulate economies. China took a different tact. They decided to have a production-led recovery. So they encouraged their companies to just produce more ideally to export, and then we have the freight problems. Anyway, <laughs> um, so that you'd have to say, looking at that um, that policy, they're not interested in, in stopping their supplies to the rest of the world. In fact, everything speaks to the opposite. So if China is your supplier and that you're still happy and you can't find an alternative supplier, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I would jump too soon. Because all signs point to them um, wanting to keep your business. Still doesn't solve the problem of getting freight from China into Australia, but that's the second issue. Paul, you've been in this sort of thought process for a while. How are you seeing look, the China situation? Look, I think I think it's less about China and it's more about 
you know, the relationships, um, you know, for any business. So if you actually have a supplier or you have a customer that you do a significant amount of business with, um, potentially that creates a risk. Um, and I think, you know, Australia and China have had some, a really interesting relationship and it, and it has signs of, you know, for example, China being perhaps concerned particularly with uh, supply issues in Brazil of, of uh, a, a reliance on Australian iron ore, for example. Um, uh, I think China is about represents about 50% of our national export income, I think. Um, there's, you know, you, you want to diversify. And I think whether you're a business or or you're a country, um, I think it's it's prudent to actually look at uh, at look at doing that. And and you know, you talked about Adam Smith. Um, I'd go back not quite so far, but Michael Porter and the competitive advantage of nations. I think, and that that kind of seesawing of power between suppliers and um, and customers. And I think I think that really explains a lot of what's happening between Australia and China, and China with and the rest of the world. I mean, China's um, it's uh, it's a growing. Uh, uh, Superpower, um, and it's uh, it's it, it's doing that not just in you know the military side and 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 the geopolitical side, but culture um, and trade and a whole range of things. Well, I think James, um, I think that's all right, Paul. And but I think companies really need to understand their supply chains and work out what is the true risk. So, for instance, when the Fukushima disaster happened. Everyone, you know, started to panic and think, oh, you know, will this affect our supply chains? But actually it was the floods in Thailand that happened at the same time that caused much more disruption to a lot of Australian supply chains. And similarly, you know, speaking to a member working out with pandemic closures and things like that, what was at risk? They were a tea bag manufacturer and they discovered it was actually the jute string, not the tea, not even the, the non-woven bag. <laughs> But the jute string that was most at risk, that they only had one supplier and if they stopped, then they'd be really in trouble. Now, of course, you can have, as people always point out to me, loose tea, but <laughs> if your business is tea bags, you don't really think, how do you make a tea bag? You don't say string at the top of your list. So it's really important that companies understand what their supply chain is and, as Paul says, what is the risk? Are they the only one? Are there, Do they only have one supplier of a key component to make the product they sell to you. You know, you have to go right down the chain. Tenu? So you sort of spoil for choice in uh, big thoughts to have about China and the, its role in world trade and our relationship with it. I'm, I, will, I will give just a couple, which are that China's economic uh, structure and its, its approach to growth is they're attempting to shift gears they're seeking to move uh, to more value add uh, to not just be a place to outsource for cheap labour or, or lax standards. And that, that transition is going a little bumpily. Uh, the, um, the, the first resort uh, for policymakers facing uh, a, a, a difficult period with growth is still to just stimulate more investment in heavy industry stuff and construction rather than uh, services and uh, domestic consumption. But they're, they're, they are trying to do that. And certainly, as Louise said, uh, labour costs have increased a lot. Uh, the the ease of uh, doing business or, or, or skirting uh, the form of ease of doing business that involves skirting rules uh, is definitely very different. Um, and you need to consider the fact that there, there is not another China emerging uh, that is going to play the same role and at the same scale that it did. There certainly are other economies where you can uh, you can do some outsourcing, you can do some some trade, but you won't have a, a billion people waiting to uh, or ready to move from their villages to uh, manufacturing jobs in 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 the cities in those places, and so. Um, increasing productivity and uh, automation and the the, the use of um, uh, industry for uh, technologies uh, as part of your your production process is is probably going to loom larger than the sort of nineties and noughties outsourcing model. 
The other thing I would just say is that uh, in terms of confidence over supply chains, we've been talking uh, about the importance of uh microchips and embedded intelligence in an increasing range of products. And uh, a lot of governments, a lot of people have raised concerns about um, IT that originates in China. Uh, I can't comment on the, the fairness or otherwise of those, those aspersions or those doubts, uh, but in a world where increasingly everything is going to have information technology embedded in it and where every product will in turn be embedded in a broader web of IT, we need to find a way to work this out because otherwise uh, what we're looking at is a separation of world trade into uh, quite distinct camps and uh, Western countries, um, so-called advanced economies, may not be on the right side of that divide. Uh, we, we might uh, lose large parts of other markets that uh, if they're forced to choose between trading with uh, the OECD and trading with China, uh, may well choose China. So we, we need a way of living together in a world where everything has got IT in it uh, and uh, hard sort of um, mutually suspicious camps is, is not actually a good outcome for anybody. You raise a good point because uh, China certainly is setting up integrated logistic systems that are based on their IT. They're based on uh, uh, Huawei. Did they say it? I always get that wrong? Uh, the Chinese satellites, rather than rather than American GPS, they are certainly setting up an alternate system, uh, and it's, it's one we need to be aware of. Let's bring it down, in, and, and I'm glad that you brought this up, uh, Tenant, about the process. Where are we with trade docs, with documentation, with uh, blockchain? We mentioned it before, but has anyone got any idea about what's going to be happening in the short term? Is it going to stay the same? or it was going to rapidly digitalise? Where are we? Well, I might just um, say a couple of things. The um, Obviously, the pandemic, the lack of flights, so you can't actually have um, bags of documents just being flown around the world has made a huge difference. In every FTA negotiation, we've always advocated for either self-issuing of things like country of origin or self-certify or um, at least digital signatures that can be used. But um, Australia and Singapore have signed a digital free trade agreement and part of that um, included a pilot where the certificate of origin that AR group issue for exports to, to Singapore were not printed. There was no need for paperwork, but the data would be sent electronically to Singapore and, and received by Singapore Customs. Um, there's a lot of attention given to that agreement. A lot of countries now think that perhaps they might like to join such an agreement. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's it's those sorts of little um, pilots that are making the difference with like-minded countries. Uh, Paul, have you got a view on where, where we're going with blockchain? Um... Not, not necessarily blockchain, but I think there's still huge productivity benefits from increasing the electronic flow of information around some of this logistics. Um, for anyone that's uh, ever tried to get a, uh, a mortgage on a property in Australia during a pandemic and had documents going in express post envelopes from Australia, uh, from Brisbane to Perth and then to Melbourne and then to someone else for people to put physical signatures on taking about six weeks. Um, you know, there are, there are real uh, gains to be made, I think, in this, but it does create some of these cyber issues that we've talked about. Um, but I, I, you know, I think it's it's one of the uh, one of the things even domestically we we need to get a lot better at in terms of how do we integrate um, uh, into some of these uh, electronic technologies um, way beyond the days where people were talking about e-commerce. Um, uh, we're we're heading into you know perhaps faster um, uh, and purely you know completely online um, trading. I reckon the best way to. Go ahead, Louise. I was going to say that the challenge there is a digital divide. And this is, again, you know, countries like India and South Africa um, don't want to be left behind. And they're not, they're not actually left behind. They're, they're well and truly more advanced than many other countries. Um, but I think this is the lumpiness of any sort of evolution, is that we can't all be there at once. 
I was going to say the surest way to increase engagement with this podcast is to say provocatively rude things about blockchain. So here goes. Uh, it is often a solution in search of a problem. Uh, you need to start with a, uh, a problem that actually needs solving. And for some things, blockchain looks like a, a very interesting option with some serious practical issues to manage around, in particular, energy consumption. There are, there are ways of doing it better than uh, Bitcoin does, but energy-wise, Bitcoin is an absolute disaster, as well as providing, here goes that engagement, uh, a really useless uh, version of currency uh, for anybody who is not a heroin dealer. Uh, so you, you need... Uh, a um, the right solution to a problem that you clearly understand. And if there is uh, a deep problem of trust uh, between trading partners, then maybe blockchain is an element of a solution, but may maybe it isn't. The, um, the issue, the, the, the fundamental issue here is always, I think they call it the double the double transaction or the, the two transaction. If I have a coin and I give it to you, tenant, not only am I giving you a, a, a $1 coin, I'm giving you $1, but also I no longer have it. So there's two transactions. There's a physical one and the actual, the, the actual monetary one. The problem with documents online is I send you the document but I still have the document so I can replicate it and send it to somebody else. There's, we're not covering both sides. The idea of blockchain is to say you can't have two documents. Once it's in the block, once it's in the chain, uh, it's, it's, it's isolated from the rest of the world. So it's, it's solving a problem, but it's not necessarily solving all the other problems. It's just solving that, two, that, that doubled exchange. So there's more to be done, I guess, lots more, and one for future podcasts. Um, we probably should wrap it up here. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on if, if you were advising me on international trade for the next six months, we've talked about Vietnam and the Pacific as being some options. Don't give up on China. Assess the supply chain risks. Keep an eye on the transport costs and the transport issues um, and accept that digital docks are going to remain the same, although there's a, something happening in Singapore. Anything else? What's your thoughts? Give me a wrap up, uh, you know, two sentences from my management team to take away. I'd say <laughs> that was a silly thing to do. Okay, we we'll, start, uh, with, um, <laughs> we'll start with Tenet, seeing as uh, he's got the floor. I would just say that in the next six months, some of the supply chain problems that are currently intense will have started to work themselves out. Uh, labour markets in some key economies will have shifted gears uh, and you know, we, we will see more of the light at the end of the current tunnel. But not all of it will be solved. You are, in a, you are in a surprisingly positive mood today, Tenna. You're, <laughs> you're taking us all with you. Paul. Look, James, one of the things I just wanted to say, I guess, is, you know, across this podcast, we, you know, if you're an Australian business, you're, you're listening to this. And the thing I want to say is that, um, yes, there's a whole bunch of dynamics in the global economy. Um, but really, if you're looking at exporting, it's not the sort of thing you do lightly, but you should do it. We should be encouraging more Australians to, to, to look to export, uh, whether it's their goods or their services. Um, and there are lots of resources available. There are state and territory, you know, trade and investment agencies. There's Austrade. There's the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Uh, uh, there's AI Group and other industry associations, et cetera, et cetera, to help you with that. Um, so look at that. Look at some of those markets. Do Look at some of the background information. Talk to some of those people. Um, think about your business. There'll be capacity issues that you've got. There'll be innovation issues. There'll be a whole bunch of regulatory issues. But don't be dissuaded from it. But take a longer, medium to long term approach to some of these things, um, and uh, and really look at also how you might better do it with other companies. So potentially you can take an integrated solution to market uh, rather than just your piece of the puzzle. Um, increasingly, people are looking at global value chains, global supply chains, make it easier for your customers. Um, by actually bringing to them a solution, not just a component. 
Yeah, I think if this conversation proved anything, it's the case of international trade is not something we can work out by sitting in our own offices. We need to engage specialists everywhere. Louise, you've been our very special guest, so you get the last say. Well, I, um, I, I agree with, with everything that's been said so far, but I'd also just get Australian exporters to think about the social impact of, of this global pandemic and what, how it will shape decision-making in the future. Just think about how suddenly, you know, we've taken flu shots every year, no thought of their brand. Now suddenly we're experts, not just on the brand of our, our um, COVID shot, but where was it manufactured? You know, that will flow through. I think people are really conscious of, of where things come from and are they safe? Can they be trusted? You know, what's the science behind them? And that will hold a lot of Australian exporters in good stead because we have good reputations where we're on terms of um, our, our quality, our adherence to rules, our adherence to, to standards, and we've never been able to compete on price. So now actually the world is shaping up to compete where we are competitive, which is on all those things, those intangibles. And I think if you, even if you haven't exported yet, you know, from the 1st of November, you're allowed to leave the island. So I encourage everyone to get out there and find new customers. In my personal experience in, in uh, traveling through Southeast Asia in particular, always were received as an Australian, always. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a badge that we can put on our credit card and know it's going to be uh, accepted as into the conversation at least. Um, thank you all. Anyone who's listening to this podcast and who took offence to Tenant's uh, cryptocurrency comment, he's on Twitter at Tenant Reed <laughs> <laughs> and he's waiting for your comments. <laughs> Um, it's been a great conversation. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll, we'll do this again soon. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please let us know on the uh, normal feedback loops or at our uh, Minerals Energy and Supply Chain page on LinkedIn. Until next time, guys, thank you, Louise. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Tenet. Thank you.